OK Boomer is next on WDBX Carbondale. Next on OK Boomer, an amazing statement. Yeah, I love I love taxes. Yes, Laura Lee Glick loves doing taxes. And why? It's because she's a college business student who wants to open her own tax service when she graduates. She's also certified by the IRS. We'll talk with her in a few minutes. She might be able to help you. Then we'll hear a Boomer talk about running a bookstore in rural America. Somewhere in this bookstore, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is here, and I can't find it. It's not where it's supposed to be. That's Sarah Heyer, owner of Confluence Books, and you'd be surprised about what it takes to run a bookstore. Now let's have a blast from the past. Remember when some of your friends would get together and pass around the bong or the joint or the pipe, and by the end of the night, no one knew which end was up because everyone was blown away? But 50 years later... The baby boomers uh, seem to be coming in here for help with inflammation and anxiety. We'll hear from Todd Lawler of the Squish Cannabis Store about the changing cannabis ingesting habits of the boomer. And we'll hear about record credit card debt, Medicare, and how much money you'll need to get by, and aspirin. Maybe some of us shouldn't take it every day. Plus, we'll hear from Bob and Marcia Smith, Roger Ramjet, and news legend Edward R. Murrow. This is Robert Rickman. The news is next. Personal loans and record credit card debt reached record levels in 2022. This according to a Consumer Pulse study conducted by the TransUnion Credit Bureau. The debt was brought on by high inflation and climbing interest rates. According to the report, credit balances reached a record-setting $866 billion in the third quarter of last year, and they are expected to keep climbing. Meanwhile, personal loans are expected to return to pre-pandemic levels in 2023 after experiencing record growth in the last 12 months. Michelle Ranieri, vice president of research and consulting at TransUnion, said that despite mounting financial pressures, there's optimism among consumers. The survey found that more than half of Americans expressed confidence about their financial health in 2023. Among the most optimistic were those in younger generations, with around two-thirds of Generation Z and millennial consumers reporting that they felt positive about their financial future. Ranieri credits the wage factor. He adds that they're getting more increases, they're getting more promotions quicker than people who might be more established in the workforce. A November press release reports the debt increase was also heavily driven by Gen Z and millennial borrowers in 2022. Credit balances grew at a higher rate among below-prime consumers, as did the rate debt repayments that are more than 60 days overdue. In the third quarter of last year, these delinquencies increased 54% year-over-year to to reach, my gosh, the highest default rate since 2014, this according to TransUnion. TransUnion expects card delinquency to increase in 2023 as consumers face liquidity shortages from prolonged high inflation, slowing wage growth, and expected increases in unemployment. Meanwhile, 8 in 10 Americans also believe the U.S. is currently in or will be in a recession by the end of 2023. 
A new study from the Employee Benefit Research Institute looks at how much money a 65-year-old who's eligible for Medicare would need to have set aside to secure a 50%, 75%, or 90% chance of covering their health care costs over the course of their retirement. Research shows, depending at least partly on a person's coverage choices through Medicare, the amount could reach into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Paul Frunston of EBRI says health care is likely going to be a big expense for you in retirement. Frunston adds that you don't want to be shocked when you get to retirement and find this out or discover that Medicare doesn't cover everything. The study assumes that money set aside at age 65 is invested, and even as you make withdrawals to cover health care costs, the account is earning 7.32% in interest and investment returns yearly. In other words, you could end up spending far more than the amounts in the study. Medigap and Advantage plans were analyzed as well. While Medigap coverage means fewer out-of-pocket expenses and therefore might be a more predictable budget item, the premiums can be pricey depending on where you live and the specifics of the policy. And over time, those monthly payments certainly add up. And while many Advantage plans have no premium, they do have their own deductibles, co-pays, or co-insurance, and out-of-pocket maximums that vary from plan to plan. Additionally, the Part D coverage of each plan can vary in terms of premiums, deductibles, and co-pays, as well as which prescription drugs are covered. The study shows that although there is a lot of variation among individuals arising from how often they use health care services and their overall health, enrollees in Advantage plans generally would need lower savings targets. Now let's talk aspirin. Do you take your daily aspirin? Me too, even though I don't have heart disease. Harvard University reports that about 29 million people 40 and older took an aspirin a day in 2017 despite not having a heart illness. The Harvard study found about 6.6 million of those people used aspirin even though a doctor never recommended it for them. Nearly 10 million people older than 70 who didn't have heart disease took daily aspirin for prevention. That's according to the researchers. I'm one of them. Uh, multiple extensive studies last year found that only a marginal benefit, if any, could be found from routine aspirin use, especially among older adults. A study published this year in the journal JAMA Neurology found that taking low-dose aspirin is associated with an increased risk for bleeding within the skull for people without heart disease. So, aspirin or no aspirin, talk to your doctor. And a recent large study from Israel just published concludes that long COVID symptoms in patients who had mild infections resolved within a year. But some physicians say the research was flawed and the findings don't match their clinical experiences could provide false assurance and may have unintended consequences for those with persistent symptoms. The team concluded that COVID-19 was significantly linked to an elevated risk of loss of smell and loss of taste in both the first 30 to 180 days and late period, 181 to 360 days. I have long COVID and I lost the taste for popcorn, but it came back. Now, the risks were also elevated for cognitive impairment in the early and late periods. I have had brain fog and you've heard it on the air here. 
and for shortness of breath, weakness, and heart palpitations. I haven't had those. Now, the risk of streptococcal tonsillitis and dizziness were lower, but still significantly elevated in both periods, while hair loss, chest pain, cough, myalgia, and respiratory disorders were significantly higher only in the early period. Risks among males and females were slightly different, and children had a fewer persistent symptoms than adults in the early period, which mostly resolved in one year. The results were similar regardless of whether the wild type, alpha or delta, SARS, COVID, or, or the other variants were dominant. Uh, vaccinated participants who later were infected had a lower risk of shortness of breath than their unvaccinated infected counterparts, but had a comparable risk of lingering symptoms such as brain fog. The authors concluded that this nationwide study suggests that patients with mild COVID-19 are at risk for a small number of health outcomes, most of which are resolved within a year from diagnosis. Now, maybe you don't use computers too much, or your penmanship leaves something to be desired, like mine, or maybe you don't like doing your own taxes. Now, if you meet the right criteria, someone from the Volunteer Tax Assistance Program may do your taxes for you, like Laura Lee Glick, who is an IRS certified tax preparer. Yes, absolutely. The IRS started it for elderly or disabled and low to moderate income individuals. What's the uh, top of the income scale that you can work with? Uh, the maximum we can work with is $60,000 per year. And what services will you supply, meaning uh, what kind of tax returns? Uh, are you going to be doing a state tax return? What are you going to handle? So we will prepare your federal and state return. Um, we can do multiple states as well. If you just moved to Illinois, um, we can do non-resident returns as well. And uh, mostly just we would do your 1040. What about foreign students? Um, we cannot do international students um, that do not have a residency. So you would have to, we do have a program that we can send you to, though, to help you out with also free tax assistance for international students. Now, you're a student. Uh, students are the ones who handle these returns? Yes, correct. Now, the students, are, I assume, are supervised by faculty? Um, we do have one faculty advisor there with us, um, but since the returns are very simple, we have taken some tax classes that cover the base for most of the material we will be using for the returns. So the university believes you're competent to do this? Yes, they trust us the students. Could you tell me a little bit about this IRS program? It's not just here in this state, but elsewhere. Correct. Um, I believe it would take place in every state. Um, there's a lot of community centers that do it. It can happen in libraries. It's not just universities that do it. It's not just university programs. I think there are a lot of other volunteers that do it. But yeah, it's a national thing. Now, as a student at this university, to my way of thinking, doing taxes is a big pain in the um, but you seem to enjoy this type of detail. Uh, what drew you to this? Yeah, I love I love taxes. Um, I think they don't always make sense, but there are rules that lead you to the right answer. I love doing research in the tax code. So, that yes, most people don't, and that's why they come to us for tax assistance. But, yeah, I've always loved just that structure because life is so unknown. I used to do my taxes manually. I do all my taxes, but I do it on a computer. But manually, you had to sit there and read manuals. Uh, you had to write it all down so it was legible. 
it was very difficult to do. And now with computers, yes, you can do it, but you don't know what's going on. Right. And I think that's something that makes us very attractive to seniors and those who don't have access to computers is that we can do that for them and they don't have to deal with the hassle. We just take all their papers and we help them out. Now, the other thing about this is if you do something on computer, you don't know what's going on behind it, meaning you don't know the logic, you don't know the rules and regulations. The computer does it for you. So you have to trust the computer. Now, I would assume there are some boomers who only use the computer for Facebook and don't, and don't have a um, smartphone. Uh, do you find them more attracted to your type of program? I would say yes, mostly because... Somewhat, for some reason, they trust us to do that for them and to see the computer's mistakes for them. But yeah, I would say they would be more attracted, but also just anyone who doesn't want to do their taxes as well. So it's not just people who don't know how to use their computers. When you graduate, what do you want to do? Um, I have always wanted to either be a partner in a small firm or, you know, be, just be a part of something smaller that feels bigger. So I, my dream was to start my own firm, but I think that's becoming more difficult. So either taking over someone's um, small tax firm or um, becoming a partner in their tax firm is kind of my dream. So you're talking about being a partner in a, in a company that does taxes for people? Correct, yes. What kind of a degree do you need for that? Um, Normally, I think you would just start out with a bachelor's in accounting, and then you'd have to get your CPA, usually. I think people just trust you more if you have a CPA when you have your own firm. And where would they come for this service? We are preparing tax returns for the next four Saturdays, skipping the weekend of March 18th, um, at Wren Hall at SIUC, at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. And um, Wren Hall is very easy to find on Google Maps or whatever map you use. Um, and we'll be in the basement, but we have people to lead you to our location. So it's very easy to find. Laura Lee Glick is a Southern Illinois University business student, but you don't need to be in Illinois to get free tax preparation because the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program offers free tax help to people who generally make $60,000 or less, as Laura Lee told us, and persons with disabilities, the elderly, and limited English-speaking taxpayers who need assistance in preparing their own tax returns. IRS-certified volunteers provide free basic tax income preparation with electronic filing to qualified individuals. Assistance is provided at community and neighborhood centers, libraries, schools, shopping malls, and other convenient locations. So check it out on the web or at your local library. It's called the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program. Okay, Boomer. Well, thanks, Lorley. Last week, as you may remember, Nurse Sharon Lawless told us she is now on an area committee that is looking into ways of making senior citizen centers more attractive to the Boomer. Now, senior centers provide low-cost meals, help seniors access community resources, and provide activities like bingo. However, in some areas of the country, attendance at senior centers has dropped as some of the older adults have passed away or moved into more supportive environments. And the baby boomer population has not filled these spaces because their interests are different from the seniors who came before them. 
I talked with Becky Salazar of the Egyptian Area on Aging Council about this question. What do boomers want? Well, we've been doing uh, senior center work groups where we're inviting seniors, uh, senior center staff, and our staff and board members, and so we're coming together and trying to figure a way to find out what baby boomers want. Like, what do they want at a center? Because we're noticing the boom- boomers aren't going to the senior centers. So, uh, the, and so we've been trying different things at some places. Now, I, I'll admit we have some centers that they have a hard time letting go of their traditional, this is how we do it. But we have some that they're really wanting to get younger people in. And so um, we've done things like changing the environment, making it um, more inviting, um, you know, more modern uh, furniture and uh, plates and things. Uh, They've been offering times of day where they have evening uh, activities, uh, dances, that kind of thing. Um, And then anything, honestly, that's trendy has been real popular, like having paint parties, uh, talking about food trucks. Uh, anything you know honestly it seems like anybody that everyone else is doing is like just because you turn older doesn't mean that you don't wouldn't enjoy the same trendy things that younger people are enjoying so I think when we just incorporate things that are popular right now into senior centers you'll still get a lot of people that will want to come out so rather than treating people differently and I think in the past that's you know, they thought when you got older, you needed different things like bingo and gambling. And, and that's not necessarily the case. They want to do the same trendy things their their kids are doing, you know. So um, that's that's what we're seeing so far. But our group's really just getting getting going. So we're, we have a lot of things we want to try. and uh, But ultimately, input from the community is going to be what kind of creates the programs. I'm 70 now, and I had never been to a senior center until I started researching for this program. And uh, I have lunch at some of the senior centers and take part in a few of the activities, but it's not as physical as I am. Like, they might have line dancing, but I'm more, you know, walk through the forest or something. Yeah, and I uh, I belong to some athletic groups in the community, and I'm amazed the number of persons in those groups are in their late 60s, 70s, even 80, that it's like a triathlon group, it's a running group, it's a swimming group. If you go to John A. Logan, there's a lot of people uh, older in their years that are very active, and I think that might be one thing that's missing. Um, you know, uh, second act through SIH, they do a lot more active kind of things, but I think we could do better at engaging the more active older adult. Becky Salazar of the Egyptian Area Agency on Aging, which has formed a committee to address the concern of younger older adults not attending senior centers. Now, if you're interested in serving on the committee or in offering ideas on programming for current senior sites, contact the Egyptian Area Agency on Aging. That's 618-985-8311, 618-985-8311, or go to the web, EgyptianAAA.org, all in small letters, EgyptianAAA.org. Let's talk business. A retired professor recently started a bookstore in the middle of the pandemic in a community of 25,000 people. Confluence Books is owned by Sarah Heyer. Now picture for a moment what this family-owned business would be like. Just imagine it. Okay, now to the question. 
What is it like running a bookstore in Carbondale, the only gently read bookstore in this area? Running a bookstore is a lot of fun. You meet so many people, and I'm learning so much because people are reading all kinds of different things. And when I get the donations, I have to go through them and say, what kind of a book is this? So I'm reading very superficially, definitely with a goal, but exposure to different areas of science and different genres. So, and then meeting people, and people, I always ask, is there an author or title that you are looking for that I should keep an eye out for? And so they tell me what they're looking for, and I say, oh, who's that? I don't know that author. What the kinds of books that does that person write? So I'm learning and connecting with people. That's the fun part of running a bookstore. And the unfun part, I would assume, is lifting up things, moving them around, sorting through things. Um, bookkeeping, uh, worrying about an old house, those are the unfun parts. I don't mind picking up stuff and moving it around. And unfortunately, I can get sucked into taking a shelf and putting it back into alphabetical order. I find that enjoyable, but I've just wasted an hour doing it that I didn't need to do. Okay. You find alphabetizing things enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's probably one of the reasons why you're running a bookstore. I guess. It was meant to be. It was in my DNA. <laughs> and, and if you want to change to just doing that, you've got several libraries in the area. Oh, that's true. Or I could go home and do my own. But, I mean, the books have to be in order so they can be found. And it's very frustrating when I'm looking for a book. Somewhere in this bookstore, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is here, and I can't find it. It's not where it's supposed to be. It's not in the business section under K-I-Y-O, and it's not downstairs in the business section, and somebody might have picked it up and left it in another section. Like they do at the grocery store, you know, you're driving, looking at the cereal, and there's a chicken legs or something sitting there in the middle of the cereal section. So sometimes with books, I'm like, wait, this isn't philosophy. No, it's history. Does it ruin your day? No. Wanna... It takes more than that to ruin my day. An interview with Bob Rickman, maybe that would ruin my day. <laughs> well, we're well on our way right now. Okay. I got it. <laughs> and despite my best efforts, Sarah Heyer had a wonderful day. Okay, Boomer. And we'll hear from Sarah next week about how her reading habits have changed because of technology and the pandemic. Sarah Heyer owns Confluence Books in Carbondale, Illinois. Confluence Books is one of our underwriters. And somewhere in that bookstore lurks one, if not two, books on trivia. And we know who probably read all of those books. Okay, here we are, Robert P. Rickman, Bob and Marcia Smith, with some fun trivia for you today. Okay, Marsha, what famous adventurer's travels might have been secret, never heard of, if he hadn't been captured and imprisoned? That's where he wrote about his adventures? Well, sort of. That's uh, where he talked about his adventures. Uh, tell me. It's Marco Polo. Oh, okay. Because when he returned to Venice after his adventure in China and so forth, he became a gentleman commander of a war vessel, striving to hold off Genovese trailers. And his galley was captured, and he was hauled to Genoa, and he was jailed there. And it was during jail that a writer heard Marco Polo's stories, and he insisted they be written down. Okay. And basically, that guy did it. He said, you tell me these stories, I'll get them published. Opportunity so. was locking. 
<laughs> Locking? Yeah. <laughs> yep, Marco Polo. If he hadn't been imprisoned, his stories probably would never have been written down. Very interesting. Did he ever get out? Oh, yeah. He went on to get married. He lived another 25 years. Became a wealthy merchant, had a wife, kids. Oh. He was a really interesting guy. You know, he was born into this uh, merchant family. His dad and his uncle had done a lot of business in China, and then they took him on a trip, and they were gone for almost 25 years altogether. Oh. And uh, they served in Chinese government uh, for the Kublai Khan. They became great friends. Okay. And then he was sent on many diplomatic missions himself. Marco was throughout the empire. He went to Southeast Asia and places like uh, Burma, India, Indonesia, Vietnam. Yeah. And then um, traveled extensively inside China for 17 years. He saw a lot of things yeah. that had previously been unknown, came back, was thrown in jail. Got out in 1299, published all this stuff, and people didn't believe him. They thought it was a bunch of tall tales. <laughs> Died at the age of 69, and we know all that about him because all this was published. I mean, 1299 is a long time ago, you know. He didn't know that little kids would all be yelling Marco Polo in the swimming pool someday. What's that mean? That's a game that kids play. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, even our kids. And there's an app today called Marco Polo, yeah. which is a, a video app. Yeah. Video calls. Okay, Eva Braun. And Adolf Hitler, how long were they married? I think they were married just a short time. I thought they got married just before he committed suicide. Am I wrong? No, you're not. Yeah, they were together like 10 years, but they were married like for 36 hours before uh, they both did themselves in. Oh, dear. He did it with a shot in the head, and she did it with a cyanide pill. Mm. But uh, he was 23 years older than her, and she was like 17-year-old photographer when she met him. And uh, she really uh, had a thing for him and wanted to marry him and even tried suicide twice because he wouldn't marry her. Wow. <laughs> but uh, finally she got her wish and uh, they did it together. Okay. And as, as a little bonus, he said, let's get married. <laughs> hey, let's get married before we kill ourselves. Yeah, yeah. What a, what a doll. Oh, dear. Okay. Speaking Here. of killing, what word originally meant walking hospital? Pneumonia? No. I think a walking pneumonia. Walking hospital Walking now. hospital. Oh. It's a word we use all the time whenever we need to call because somebody got hurt. We have to call in. Emergency. 411. Ambulance. 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 911. The first recorded use of ambulance was in 1819. The word comes from the French hospital ambulant, meaning walking hospital. Oh. But ambulaire. The Latin word means to walk. So a walking hospital, what does that mean? A mobile hospital that follows an army in warfare. They were first called ambulances, those tents where you'd have care for the wounded. And then during the Crimean War, the British started using ambulance as the name of the covered horse-drawn wagons that carted soldiers off the battlefield. So it evolved certainly over the years. To what we use today. Yeah. Basically, the ambulance is the vehicle yeah. that we call in case yeah. there's somebody who's sick or injured. But it originally meant walking hospital. Okay. <laughs> Curious. Okay, so, you know I'm reading uh, Devil in the White City. Yes. The true story of the building of the Columbia World's Fair in Chicago and the uh, uh, serial killer who uh, ran amok in Chicago during the same time. This is the uh, Eric Larson book from a few years back. Yes. Yes. It's, uh, it's riveting on many levels. But anyway, here's the question. Why was the white city of the great Chicago World's Fair white? It's called the white city. Yeah, yeah. Why was it all white? Well, you know, I always thought it had to do with electricity because 
electricity was the wonder of the age, and they lit it up at night, and that was totally different. Nobody had ever seen cities that way. Yeah. So I would assume it was because of the night light. Yeah. Well, that's a good guess. Okay. It's not right, but it's oh. it didn't it all it lent itself to the spectacle. Yes, it makes that sense. Was, uh, that was the white city. They did light it up at night, right? Yes. So I'm half right. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> and but what happened was they ran out of time to paint everything and everybody was fighting and there was no time left and finally somebody at the committee meeting nobody knows who said let's just paint the whole damn thing white oh <laughs> no kidding yeah. you know one color mono. so all the buildings were white because yeah, it, they, they, they didn't, didn't run have, out of paint they ran out of time. time yeah to do wow. you know all the this and that and the cornices and but they painted everything white in the grand concourse there, and it was a spectacular. And then at night, with the white lights on it, it blew everybody away. Now, you told me, as you're reading this, that it was great pandemonium. I mean, this committee was disorganized. There oh were all kinds of amazing that the fair even came off. I don't know how it ever came off. There were so many things to do, and it had so little time to do it, how all those buildings got built. And I think it was Nigerians arrived a year early. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's right. You told me about that. Yeah. They were supposed to come for the uh, exhibit, and uh, they had the month right, but they came a year early. So they had to go to New York uh, and pick them up and bring them back and have them housed on the land somewhere f- to wait out the year. For they, a year. They had, uh, they had all these people and camels and stuff and things to sell, and it was it was a crazy time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it for today. We just want to remind everyone, if they'd like to join us on the web, they can come to our site at theofframp.show. Back to Robert P. Rickman. Thanks for letting us share some off-ramp trivia for you today. Well, thank you very much, Bob and Marsha. Let's talk about the good old days that we both remember because Bob, Marsha, and I are in the 70-year-old range. So, gang, remember the good old days when we were young, you know, smoking in the parking lot? Oh, no, I'm not talking about cigarettes. I'm talking about marijuana. And I admit I tried it, but I didn't inhale. (laughs) But for those of you who did inhale, wasn't it a rush? Wasn't the inevitable attack of the munchies exciting? You know, when you went out to buy ice cream and came back with potato chips and ate the whole bag at once while watching Reefer Madness? But Todd Lawler of the Squished Cannabis Store in Marion tells me boomers don't come into his store with the idea of getting blown away. No, Todd says boomers are looking for pain-free relaxation. The baby boomers uh, seem to be coming in here for help with inflammation and anxiety. And the the CBD seems to be a a good um, medicine for inflammation and anxiety. Now, in the good old days, in the 70s, uh, the baby boomers used um, CBD and pot, as we used to call it, uh, for recreational use. Now, do you see much of that now? Yeah, we do have a lot of people coming in looking for the the THC side. The, the THC side's out by the airport. It's it's called consume. It started out being called the Harbury. So there's a lot of people that first go to the consume side that are referred over here because there's a lot of people that are sensitive to THC. So we help the people that are sensitive to THC. I'm sensitive to THC now. Uh, and I mentioned to you before, I, I was taking some of this for anxiety and 
after one puff, I had an enormous amount of anxiety for about an hour to an hour and a half. And we're talking about one, maybe one or two puffs for the entire night. Yeah, there's over 4,600 strains of cannabis. So for for somebody to find something that's a beneficial, you know, effect to them is a little bit overwhelming. So there's something called the biphasic effect. So if somebody gets a milligram or two of THC, they might sleep like a baby. Whereas if they get, you know, 10, 20, 30 milligrams of THC, it'll, it'll almost be a panic attack. I mean, they feel worse after they took than before. That's the way I felt for a couple of hours. And the other thing is, one of the reasons why I stopped it last year is because I thought it was affecting my sleep. A lot of people get get benefit if it's an endocannabinoid deficiency by taking some of these phytocannabinoids from a plant that are CBD cannabinoids versus THC cannabinoids throughout the day. So that, that way they're they're not trying to, you know, just take something to go to bed. They're less anxious throughout the day. So therefore at night, their nighttime dose, they it's really effective. There's some people that have a little bit of benefit of even a milligram or two of THC before sleep to help them sleep. Now, have you had doctors um, recommend patients come over to Squish? Oh, yeah. There's there's several local doctors that send me a lot of people. It's a uh, there, we wish there was a test for endocannabinoid deficiency, but I guess the only test is if we can introduce some phytocannabinoids, you know, over a week or two in a controlled manner. And, uh, you know, the the testimonies is really all we have as far as, you know, um, proof right now. So, Well, yes, you don't have any means of testing. Now, could you, just, I can't even pronounce that word, endocannabinoids, uh, what is that? The endocannabinoid system, it basically creates something in the body called homeostasis. Homeostasis. It's the it's the different systems, you know, that are getting along well, able to communicate. It's a, a feeling of well-being that's created by natural in, in naturally, you know, occurring cannabinoids in the body. If you're lacking in those cannabinoids, we can give you some that we, we grow on our farm that um, simulate those, that that do what something your body should be doing. So you're growing this yourself? Yes, yes. We have a farm south of town. We we qualified under the Industrial Hemp Act. We grow high CBD flour. We we only use the flour, and we we just simply put it into olive oil and avocado oil and strain it. So there's no there's no high tech involved. It's just simply we do as good a job growing and keeping the plant. Um, below certain temperatures because terpenes is something that's involved with, the, you know, the making of the cannabinoids. So if we don't let the plant get above 80 degrees, if we keep it in a controlled environment, there's, you know, the true full spectrum effect, the synergy of the cannabinoids, flavonoids, um, and the terpenes. This, so in other words, if somebody was trying to discover which strain might work best for them, it, a lot of people recommend if you smell these different strains, if you if you smell one that smells good, that could that's about as good of a start as we've got to, you know, getting you something that might be beneficial to you. That's an awfully simple way of looking at things. Yeah, it's um, you know the the mass the masses are into I call it the trash to cash game. They they grow a whole field, they put it in a big batch of ethanol, and um, 
they isolate only the CBD molecule. And it's it, there's something at the pharmacy called Epidiolex. It's a extremely strong um, isolated CBD compound that's that was um, made by GW Pharmaceuticals with the help of Dr. Ralphiel Meshlam at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. So the you know the 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 medical side of things they want something that's scalable that's repeatable that's you know but plant medicine's not that we plant medicine is something that's um you know it's we're not we're trying to not be smarter than the plant we're trying to just grow the plant the best we can and as gently extract the plant as you can in other words the best medicine might just be literally walking up to a plant and eating the flower that's on the plant so it sounds like it is not a science yet it might not be a science it's more of an art and a craft well it's it's, it turns out that science is is bought by the chemical companies the the chemical companies own the universities they determine what science is so it's um the i mean the closest we have to studies right now is something called the cannabis health index it's on its third edition right now it's a worldwide uh publication um, Dr. Yu Blushing, he um, he 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 groups particular ailments with particular chemotypes, and has respectable studies, you know, showing you know what what that'll do and with what dose, you know, for major illnesses like Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy. That's the closest we have to a collective. I think the more that we can develop a collective where all of this information is easily accessible accessible by our doctors the better these people will have a chance to get something that actually works for them wow that's something i wasn't aware of that and you have from what i can tell an extensive knowledge of this and you also know the history um yes i i've uh, i've read as much as i can that um the as far as i know the um going back into ancient times there was a, a guy named uh babaku um like that would um, actually, you know, sit in the rivers over there somewhere around Afghanistan and smoke a hookah and and smoke an incredible amount of hash and roll his little hash balls into little pills and like hand out to leopards on the Silk Road, believe it or not, is what I've read. Um, but as far as more well documented, there's an Irish guy named um, O'Shaughnessy, William O'Shaughnessy, that was messing with cannabinoids in ireland you know making some concentrates having lots of benefits it it actually came over here to the united states it was the number three medicine in um in in the doctor's bags here in the united states before you know they changed the name to marijuana and made it sound mexican you know they they got rid of the cannabis definition and called it the Mexican slang term and made it this evil thing. So yeah, it was a, it's a very important medicine from the beginning of time. Okay, you're saying in the doctor's bags, THC, CBD, when was this? In the early days, like the frontiers days, like all the way up until the, you know, until it became illegal, you know, after the depression, after they, they, they demonized alcohol, after the, you know, Anslinger and his officers had no other thing to demonize they picked marijuana it happened that a guy named dupont was farming plastic at the time they had a friend named william randolph hearst that that developed the reefer madness campaign and um it it all worked for a bunch of powerful people how they needed it to i watched reefer madness 
I found it very amusing. <laughs> it's comical today, but believe it or not, like our grandfathers and our senators and our presidents and leaders of the world were actually swayed by it. You have any final thoughts? <laughs> I want to try to help get the medicine to the people. I think it's a very important medicine, and um, it's it is plant medicine, so it's it's not exact. So just just stick with it. Give it a couple weeks and try a low dose. Try titration is starting at the bottom and working up. So don't come in with a heavy dose. Start with a microdose, like one to twenty milligrams. You know, know if it's CBD. Know if it's THC. You know, look at the um, the cannabis health index. If it if it's a condition you're trying to treat, you know, see what the studies have shown. Like if it's a one to one, like for MS, or if it's a um, you know, epilepsy, it's, it seems to be like high CBD, like this epidiolex that, that Dr. Meshlin discovered or developed for GW Pharmaceuticals. There's also Sativax. You can get it at the pharmacy, the one-to-one that, that um, Meshlin also made for GW Pharmaceuticals. I think there's, there's new um, research in the raw cannabinoids. Like everybody thinks the stuff needs to be activated, but in its raw form, I think that's hard to stabilize for them, but I think that's what they're working on. So in other words, this raw flour, if you could simply put it in your smoothies and eat it, you might be surprised the benefits you receive. That's Todd Lawler, co-owner of the Squish Cannabis Store in Marion. Oh my gosh, I just noticed this. I'm overdue for coffee, so let's get up. Let's get up. Getting harder every day. And let's walk to the coffee pot and talk about Carrie. I worked at a radio station about 10 years ago with Carrie. And I had my mug, my radio station mug with my name embossed. And we were going to do this program called A Cup of Joe with Robert. And I couldn't find my mug. And, well, you'll hear that right now. You also hear about Congress. It's entertaining and uh, educational. So let's have a cup of Joe with Robert. Cup of Joe in a styrofoam container with Robert. Cup of tea in my white mug that has no name on it. Now, if you turn it over, you will see that my name is on it. I'm not going to turn it over, Robert. I've got tea in it. Yeah, well, see, that's the next problem. I don't mind you borrowing my mug, but the tea messes up the coffee when I eventually drink coffee out of it. Do you wash the mug? Yes, but I might not clean the lipstick off. (sighs) How little regard does the American public have for mugs or Congress? Lawmakers don't want to know, but public policy polling is going to tell them anyway. 830 respondents to the PPP survey (laughs) have an unfavorable view of their elected representatives compared to the 9% who approve of the job they've done. Americans prefer Brussels sprouts to Congress by 69% to 23%. In fact, lice get the nod over Congress by 67% to 19%. Colonoscopies also beat Congress by 58% to 31%, while root canals are easily more favored 56% to 32%. I'm absolutely gobsmacked. 
Cockroaches are vile little creatures, but seemingly not so vile as congressmen, winning that head-to-head competition 45% to 43%. One of the most controversial figures in America, Donald Trump, somehow even he edges out D.C. lawmakers by 44% to 42%. I'm gobsmacked too. However, another target of public disdain is the rock group Nickelback. But even this Canadian band gets higher marks than Congress. 39% to 32%. Have that with your plastic cup of joe. And apparently Robert Rickman's given me his mug. Kerry Boylan. Little known facts about well-known people. The strange, the weird, the unusual. (laughs) Challenging (laughs) trivia. Did you know facts? And lots of things you should have learned in school. Including lots of fun stuff. That's right. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us for a half hour of fun. Every week on The The Off-Ramp. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at theofframp.show. Louisiana Gumbo Pot right here on WBBX, and we have some big news for you. Friday, March 10th, and Saturday, March 11th, at the Route 51 Brewery is our annual WDBX Mardi Gras Madness Fundraiser. Friday night, the Zydeco Crawdaddies, direct from St. Louis, will be starting around 7 p.m., and then Ivis John Band will close out the night. Saturday night, Fiddle Rick and the Bourbon Boys, house band of the gumbo pot, will kick off the night at 6 p.m., and straight from New Orleans, it's going to be Papa Gros Funk. You can get your pre-sale tickets at Plaza Records in Carbondale, Illinois. $30 for both nights and an event t-shirt. Plaza is open seven days a week from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Yeah, you're right. There is no party like a gumbo pot are you an aspiring author looking to get your book published look no further than tech time publishing company at tech time we specialize in bringing the best books to readers everywhere our team of experienced editors and designers work closely with authors to bring their stories to life ensuring every book is of the highest quality But that's not all. TechTime also offers a unique service to translate and narrate books and revenue sharing. This means that our talented team of translators and narrators will be compensated with a share of the book sales. So whether you're an author, translator, or narrator, TechTime is the place to be. Join our community of book lovers and let us help you bring your stories to the world. Visit our website today to learn more. That's techtime.it. TechTime.it. Dot .it And if you're looking for a first-class Italian translator, check out Laura Squigna. It's spelled S G U I G N A. Laura Squigna and you can find her on the Tech Time website under translators. Back to action with a song many of us heard from record players that the teenage girls with their heavily sprayed hair used to play. I remember this song. And so does the guy who resembles this 1960-era cartoon character, Roger Ramjet. Roger Ramjet and his eagles fighting for our freedom. Fly through and then outer space, not to join them, but to be them. Roger Ramjet, he's our man, hero of our 
incarnation for his adventures. Just be sure and stay tuned to this station. The twist was very popular, as I mentioned in the 1960 post about that song. This song refers to that popular dance and went to number 8 on the Hot 100, spending 23 weeks on the chart. It also spent a couple of weeks on the R&B chart, peaking at number 26. Chubby Checker has also recorded this song in German, where it went to number 12, and Italian, where it peaked at number 3. In 1962, the song won a Grammy for Best Rock and Roll Recording. Here's Chubby Checker and Let's Twist Again. R-R-P. Out of the past 1961, Chubby Checker, and Let's Twist Again, courtesy of The Jet. Now, as Mark Twain allegedly remarked, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Let's hear if any of this post-World War II history rhymes with events of today. And as usual, what rhymes is your decision. Edward R. Murrow reports. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. 7 p.m. Eastern Wartime. This is KROD, El Paso, Texas. 5 p.m. Mountain Wartime. This is the home service. 12 o'clock midnight, British double summer time. Говорит Москва. It was 2 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time, August 14, 1945. For 2,172 days, the world had been at war. Then that hushed, synchronized silence, like that which exists in a prize fight between the count of nine and ten. And then, in 60 different languages, it was over. The first announcement came from Prime Minister Attlee. Japan has today surrendered. The last of our enemies is laid low. Now, back to New York. People who have seen Times Square celebrations before declare that this is the biggest uh, spectacle in New York history. Estimates of the crowd go beyond a half million. And on the lawns of the White House, in Moscow's Red Square, in the ruins of Stalingrad, this was victory. And in St. Patrick's on Fifth Avenue, and in almost every house of worship throughout the land, people prayed. In Boston that night, people filled parched gas tanks with high-test gasoline. And in San Francisco, confetti of ration stamps and V-mail stationery floated down on Market Street. The war was over. The long sweat was done. 10 million barracks bags were mentally packed that night. A boat whistle in the harbor had a new meaning that night. The whole world was like an air raid shelter at dawn. We raised the blackout curtains and let the darkness out. And a voice that will never need identification echoed in our ears. So we are going to win the war, and we are going to win the peace that follows. This album, then, is the story of the search for that peace, of the first three years of the atomic age, of the phenomenon of the unsought world leadership suddenly thrust upon the average American, and of the bizarre sideshows which kept this slightly bewildered citizen 
from losing the good-natured resilience which is the very core of his strength. Patience and fortitude. Fiorello H. LaGuardia was no sideshow. He was a comprehensive three-ring circus. In one ring, his honor the mayor. In another, the unorthodox little world statesman. And in the third ring, his hat, his pursuit of fire engines, and his limitless love of children. One Sunday morning during a newspaper strike, he put on his horn-rimmed glasses, threw away his prepared script, and broke with tradition for the millionth time. Now, children, I know you're all disappointed today that you didn't get the funnies. So gather around. Ah, uh, here's Dick Tracy. Let's see what Dick Tracy is doing. Now, get this picture. Here is wet wash. The doors of the laundry wagon are open. He's leaning with his back toward the wagon. And he's counting his money. Two, three, four thousand. Now he's getting into the hundreds. Six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred. And the picture shows a hand of breathless. She's got hold of that iron pot. Remember the iron pot she took from the Van Hoosens? And crash! She crashes it on his head. Knocked out. Next picture we see Dick Tracy. You know, the fine type of Dick Tracy. He's been a detective so long. And he still has that slender form. Lou Valentine, why do our detectives get fat, I wonder? And say, children, what does it all mean? It means that dirty money never brings any luck. The reconversion to peace was not easy. We had a surplus of Sherman tanks, B-17s, K-rations, generals, and olive drab material. We had an acute shortage of trains to bring the boys home, a shortage of new cars, washing machines, white shirts, and a worldwide shortage of competent men for the peace table. We also had a nervous ally in Moscow. While the London Foreign Minister's Conference was a failure, Molotov pointed out that the Allies had differences during the war and always found the right solution in the end. This was the most hopeful note he struck. Russia believes she did most to win the war and that she should have most to say in making the peace. That was H.V. Kaltenborn in November of 45. Hank Greenberg changed uniforms in time to help win the World Series for Detroit. They finally gave Cordell Hull the Nobel Peace Prize. But the peacemakers still had work to do in Iran, Indonesia, and Greece. The Russian demand that British troops be withdrawn from Greece is only a move in the propaganda campaign against the British, which the Russians are conducting all through Eastern Europe. The immediate objective of that campaign is to support the traditional Russian push toward warm water. But it may also be aimed at weakening and discrediting democratic socialism, of which England is now the strongest bulwark. That was Elmer Davis early in 46. What was to be a three-month strike was on at General Motors, and people who read books were somewhere between the lost weekend and peace of mind. Behind the scenes of the next world war, London, the big three are again in diplomatic convulsions. Russia is insistent upon becoming an African power, which Great Britain will resist to the last ounce of strength. When one lifeline crosses another lifeline, the result is a noose for world peace. Paris, diplomatic relations between the Vatican and the Kremlin are very, very bad. They will get very, very much worse. That was Winchell in February. So this was peace. In retrospect now, it seems like a nightmare. In fewer months than it took us to lose Corregidor, we seem to be losing the peace on points. 
By March, nerve ends were frayed. Andre Gromyko walked out of the UN for the first time. And on the fifth day of March, the phrase Iron Curtain was born at Westminster College. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all our subjects, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from, uh, from Moscow. Winston Churchill, no longer Prime Minister, delivered the most startling warning of a startling if career. The population of the English-speaking commonwealths be added to that of the United States with all that such cooperation implies in the air, on the sea, all over the globe, if all British moral and material forces and convictions are joined with your own in fraternal association, the high roads of the future will be clear. Not only for us, but for all. Not only for our time, but for a century to come. And that was Edward R. Murrow reporting post-World War II. If any of it rhymes, it's up to you to determine it. And that's OK Boomer for today. I'm Robert Rickman, and I'd like to thank Laura Lee Glick, Becky Salazar, Sarah Heyer, Todd Lawler, Sherry Holman, Bob and Marcia Smith, Roger Ramjet, and Janice Paul. I'm Robert Rickman. Have a good rest of the week. <laughs>